All right, we have a great interview today with GoPuff's co-CEO, Raf Ilishayev. Just a great guest and a great business. You're really going to enjoy it. But first, we're going to tee up a very relevant story that broke right after we did this interview, which is Joker, J-O-K-R, is an instant delivery startup that is looking uh, to sell its New York City business so they can stay focused on their home turf in Latin America. Why? Because they're allegedly burning a ton of cash in uh, New York City. And possibly because GoPuff is torching them in New York City. Hey, oh, pun intended. Then we talk about Cruise, which is A, still around, and B, raising $1.3 billion from SoftBank. This is the autonomous driving startup that was acquired by GM and is now starting officially a robo-taxi beta in San Francisco. What could go wrong? (laughs) What could go right? (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Going to be an interesting 37 days, and this is going to be a great episode. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Masterworks, the first company allowing investors exposure into the blue chip artwork asset class. Twist listeners can skip the 30,000 person waitlist by going to masterworks.io and using promo code TWIST. Linode's startup program is built specifically for founder-led early stage startups. It's called Rise and it comes with a three-year discount program and tech consultants to help with infrastructure growth. Apply today at linode.com slash twist. And Our Crowd. Our Crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join Our Crowd for free at ourcrowd.com slash twist. All right, we have a great interview coming up, but before that, we got a little news that is very relevant to the great interview that we have coming up. Instant delivery startup Joker is in talks to sell its New York City operation after facing big losses, according mm. to reporting by the information. And uh, the reason I say it's relevant to our interview is that we're talking with GoPuff co-CEO Roth Ilishayev, and they're, of course, a competitor to Joker, and they seem to be going gangbusters. Yep. But here, Joker is pulling out of the New York City market. And this is a company, by the way, that only operates in one other U.S. city, which is Boston. And mm-hmm. two or B, just raised a $260 million Series B mm-hmm. at a $1.2 billion post-money valuation, which was co-led by GGV and HV Capital. So what are we looking at here? Well, uh, you know, it just reminds me of when Uber and Lyft and uh, what was the other company? God, there was another, uh, a sidecar. There were a bunch of different people who were trying to do, you know, the the Uber Lyft thing. And it became clear to Lyft that Uber was such a dominant player and so good at what they did and so well capitalized that Lyft went to the cities, people forget this early on, that Uber had not gotten to yet. So there was a time when Uber was only in five cities. So Lyft said, okay, you're not in Atlanta. You're not in Nashville. We're going we're gonna to go to those cities first. Mm. This way, we know you're coming. And when you do, we know you're going to put your foot down. But maybe we can get a little head start here. Maybe we can build up our brand. And I think what Joker is dealing with is you have a company backed by SoftBank, huh? Mm-hmm. Who is super well capitalized. And they're going to play a certain playbook, which is whatever city you're in, we're going to dominate in. We'll spend twice as much money. Uh, we'll lose money if we have to. These things might seem anti-competitive. Um, discounting is not an anti-competitive practice. You, you're allowed to give discounts, but it could be for a large company if they did it to extinguish another company. I think it can be considered a um, anti-competitive practice. We'll, we'll have to like double click on that of when it applies, but that's what's happening here. Right. Joker just can't compete. There's too many players, too many fish in the pond, not you know enough algae or food or whatever for them to eat, which means you are... Uh, could have a collapse in the ecosystem. Mm. And when something collapses in the ecosystem and you're the fish that's big and doesn't die, you become more powerful. So this is just too many fish in the pond. Some of them are going to die and Joker apparently is uh, folding. And that's healthy for a market. They're folding in New York City and they appear to potentially, at least according to the information, have set their sights on a different pond. Investors, uh, a few months ago, Joker was going to further expand global operations after launching across over 10 cities in Latin America, Europe, and the U.S., evidently it's investors, probably because of all of the reason the big fish like GoPuff in yeah. the pond over here are saying, we want you to double down 
on Latin America because labor costs and competition are far lower. Joker's actually based in Latin America. Yeah. And, it, you know, so, yeah, they'll be closer to home. They understand those markets better. Big win. Uh, this reminds me of Uber in China. And yep. Uber's philosophy was, we're going for the gold. And if we get the silver, we're not happy about it, but we're in the game. Mm-hmm. But if we're bronze or below, we're, we're going to sell the unit to whoever is gold or silver, and we're going to win that way. Yeah. They did that with Didi. They did it in Russia. They did it in a couple of other markets with Grab, I think, too. So they're folding New York uh, because they can't win. And I think it's a smart, smart idea. If you're, again, in an industry and you're the number one or number two player, you're in all likelihood going to hit profitability and you're going to print money and it's going to be a delightful experience. When you're number three, four or five, you're acquisition bait and you're basically screwed. Postmates sold to Uber. Uh, DoorDash bought a company. I don't know if it was. I always forget the name of the company they bought. But there was some other delivery service they bought. Hmm. It's just really hard to exist as a fourth or fifth player. And now you're fighting a war really far from the homeland. And that also is a recipe for a disaster. We've seen that in wars, right? Like literally, it's kind of hard to go fight a war in, you know, maybe in modern times, it's less so, but halfway around the world. Joker might be, I mean, Joker compared to potentially some other competitors, because let's not forget that the Wall Street Journal report since 2020, there have been, there's been five and a half billion dollars invested into just six instant delivery competitors in New York Mm -hmm. City. At least Joker is in a position where they've got a beachhead to retreat through to, right? Mm-hmm. They can go back, refocus, reconcentrate in the Latin America and potentially kill it there for all we mm-hmm. know. Um, whereas as the rest of this market consolidates, some of these companies, you know, get here, I think it's pronounced gorillas might end up dying. Um, you're going to obviously hear a little bit more about the GoPuff business model in a couple of minutes. And it doesn't seem like they're in danger of dying, but everybody is feeling the loss. It's going to be, um, you know, a very difficult business because it's about scale and it's about being able to survive for a decade. Who's going to be able to start, survive for a decade? DoorDash, Uber Eats, um, Amazon. And it feels like GoPuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't feel like anybody after that has much of a chance of surviving. Um, I think we'll look back on this in 10 years and I would be surprised if, you know, the names I just mentioned were not the dominant players around the world three or four of them. And I would be surprised if anybody else adds to that list. And even for GoPuff, I think, you know, with our interview today, as good as they're executing, as well as they're executing, they're going to be coming up against Amazon, DoorDash, and Uber Eats. And those are going to be formidable competitors uh, who, you know, they're going to be hard to uh, compete against. Because I, I, my personal feeling on this, and this is my feelings after we did the interview that's coming up in the second half of the show, I don't know that people care about the difference between 15 and 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. I, you know, having experienced these now, I think it might be a little overblown. I think under an hour is the magic. And I think that means that the DoorDashes and Ubers and eventually Amazon, if they choose to, are going to have a pretty good role to play here. I, I mean, yeah. I don't know about you, Molly, is there... My, for most of your purchases, is yeah, there a difference for you between 15 and 60 minutes? Not really, right? Like mm-hmm. at some point, it's just not, it's not that crucial unless it's, I don't know, tampons. But like Drugs. what I do think is interesting. Alcohol. <laughs> maybe alcohol. Well, and that's yeah. where, so the, the competitive advantage that GoPuff does have, and I'm not going to give away too much of our interview, but what I do think is interesting is that compared to DoorDash, Uber, and Amazon, which are, well, Amazon owns Whole Foods. So if you're getting groceries from them, at least, you know, you're getting groceries from a Whole Foods. So they have that delivery. Um, They have the fulfillment centers built into their delivery premise, whereas DoorDash and Uber are getting it from restaurants or ghost kitchens. Mm. Um, And GoPuff's big differentiator, which we will discuss at length, is that they own their own fulfillment centers and micro-fulfillment centers. So to me, this whole interview, and listen for this, all comes down to the suburbs. Yep. Whoever yeah, wins it, the suburbs could win. I think it's going to be a big part of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at, I mean, also, we've talked about this just in our investment careers, asset light versus asset heavy uh, businesses. Yep. And GoPuff has chosen asset heavy to get some advantages in speed. And then the question is, if you're DoorDash, Uber Eats, and you're fulfilling from Walgreens and CVS, and you're doing it in under an hour, which is a better business to be in? It's going to be a dogfight and it'll be interesting to see. 
2021 was a huge year for IPOs. We all know that. Over 1,000 companies went public. But two-thirds of those companies are now trading below their offering price, according to research from our friends over at Masterworks. And reports of raising interest rates are causing some investors to adjust their portfolios. That's why some people are allocating more capital into blue chip art. Masterworks is the investment platform that lets you invest in shares of pieces by legends like Picasso, Monet, and of course, Banksy. In November, the Wall Street Journal published an article titled, Art is Among the Hottest Markets on Earth. They reported that art owned by the wealthy has potentially appreciated even more than their other asset classes. For example, back in May, Picasso sold for $103 million. That's a 1,400% increase from its original auction price. So with Masterworks, you don't need to be a billionaire to own a Picasso. And Masterworks is letting Twist listeners skip their wait list. Just go to masterworks.io slash twist to cut the line. That's masterworks.io slash twist. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. All right, let's do our next story. And this is in the We Live in the Future. Uh, W-LIT-F uh, is our lit, acronym. LIT-A-F is it's what lit this thing is, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, Cruise just opened its San Francisco uh, robo-taxi service to the public and announced a $1.3 billion raise from SoftBank, uh, which is, you know, like a quaint raise from SoftBank. I know, exactly. I was like, that sounds like so much money, but... Not 10, not 5, just a billy. Uh, Remember, Cruise was acquired by GM back in 2016 for $580 million. Uh, They raised over $13 billion to date, both before and after the GM acquisition. Cruise was recently valued at $30 billion. Uh, So let's talk about this robo-taxi service. They're starting with a small number of users. California DMV gave Cruise a permit to test fully driverless vehicles in 2020. Right now, it's going to be free. Uh, and in December 2021, the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency pushed against Cruise's proposal to charge rides, citing safety and vehicles' ability to follow rules like picking up passengers at the curb instead of in the middle of the road. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's take a look at this uh, passengers. This is some B-roll of... Mm-hmm. This is uh, um, this is techies getting driverless rides in San Francisco and sitting in a vehicle that of which no one is at the wheel. Mm. They demonstrate uh, rides, by the way, at night. Mm. So just to show like our cars can see great. The but the sign form does make it seem like they'll be testing at all times of day on uh, both Apple and Android devices. And by the way, these are going to be driving around San Francisco. So just like heads up, <laughs> heads up, people in the crosswalk. I know you're already getting run down by cars. Um, they appear yeah. to call in the video the car from the cruise app, mm. and you see the car doing basic driving things like slowing down to go over speed bumps and picking people up and, you know, not cra- crashing. Does feel like a good idea? San Francisco, the city to do this? Of all cities? That's exactly what I thought. I was like, wow, San Francisco. I mean, it is bold. A lot of these driverless car companies are doing their testing in Las Vegas and like Phoenix. Where it's Arizona just like is good. Yeah, wide grid. open. You got a nice grid. San Francisco is like a ball of hair with lots of homeless people in the street and hills you can't see over. Yeah. Like, whoo, God help them. This is, um, I'm going to make a prediction here. This is not going to turn out well. Yeah. I have a feeling we're, and I don't know what the scale of this is, and I don't think they say, but this could be two cars that they're testing with 10 employees. So there might not be so many of these on the road that we get a lot of, um, you know, uh, videos of it doing weird stuff. Uh, but this is not going to work in Manhattan or San Francisco now. This seems like a really bad idea. Yeah. Um, as much as I'm pro-technology, I just think the pedestrian situation mm-hmm. in a city like San Francisco at this moment in time, you brought up the homeless. And in some cases, you know, we might be saying homeless. We might be saying people who are on fentanyl <laughs> passed out in the street. So, yeah, th- this is like, I mean, and it's not to make light of the situation. It's not in the, the reality. It, there are a lot of unintended human interactions in San Francisco and that it's that yes. it's in the road. It's in the crosswalks. It's not in the crosswalks. Like it's a it it's a scary thing. to. What's interesting about this video, too, is that it's like a lot of um, techies trying to put the stamp on it. So in the video is Twitch mm. CEO Emmett Shear. Jamie Quinch from Uncommon Capital, Y Combinator President Michael Seibel. I mean, it just points to the fact that driverless taxis and fully autonomous vehicles. Oh, so the mob project? (laughs) Yeah, it's a mob project. It's a mob project. It is something the mob really wants to work. Everybody wants this to work eventually. Sure. It is. But I mean, there's been no indication that driverless car technology is actually this far along. 
by anybody. What I would like to know, maybe somebody who works at Cruise or PR or at GM or something can tell us, is there a safety driver remotely monitoring these cars? I'm going to guess there is. So yeah, oh, what, sure. that would, what that would mean is it's a self-driving car, but it's kind of running autopilot. In other words, there's somebody ready to take over at a home base looking at a computer somewhere in real time, because that is what I think is the great bridge here. One, one minute out of every, I don't know, 50 to 100 is going to be really challenging for these cars. Mm-hmm. And maybe there'll be 48 minutes, 49 minutes out of every, let's say out of every hour, there'll be 55 easy minutes, three or four modestly challenging. And then one minute of, we need an intervention here because somebody jumped in front of the car or mm-hmm. there's a double park car or whatever. A bicyclist is doing something crazy. That's when a human needs to take over or at least monitor the situation and kind of backseat drive the, the, the AI. Yeah. And I think that's what Waymo might have been doing in Arizona is that we're remote people. Uh, but it's coming. It's and definitely I coming. Be down, I don't want to be down on it. To be clear, like, right. I am not in the La Cosa Nostra. <laughs> <laughs> we're joking. Why she's ma- not. I'm trying um, to make this happen now. I do oh, I want this to happen. The mafia. And I think it's very cool that Cru- like Cruz is trying to build a, build a purpose-built vehicle that will essentially be Small, but mass transit ready, yeah. right? Like this is a great future for transit. Awesome. Um, it's going to be uh, interesting to see how this experiment goes. It's a start. Let's do it. But everybody I'm watch gonna out. I'm going to set the over under at 37 days before a video is released that trends of a cruise car in San Francisco having a unique interaction. Yeah. Would you take the under 37 days before a video is released or I'm, over 37 I'm days, Molly? Under? I'm You're taking the under. One. I'm taking the under. <laughs> I probably would have taken the under in my own line, but I'll take the over. There's your bet, the everybody. Under. Somebody yep. got to keep track of these bets. Thinking in bets. Uh, you know, we have to think in bets here. We have to always be handicapping as investors. So I think we're going to see like literally a homeless person fight a cruise car. <laughs> Or a bike, you know, God forbid, like God forbid. ramming into the side of it or, yeah. you know, somebody slamming their horn and yeah. But I think it's I th- my, my bet is, you know, in a, in a, a grid based city, we could see these uh, being delightful mm-hmm. um, in the next five years. And you potentially, know, in a grid-based city. yeah, just to set up our uh, upcoming interview with Ralph from GoPuff, okay. potentially yeah, go the, great uh, delivery vehicles. So, yeah, let's get I, I to. <laughs> The interview with uh, GoPuff Coast CEO, Rob. Great guest. Cloud infrastructure costs are one of the biggest expenses for startups, and they're also some of the most unpredictable. It's no wonder that many startups get lured to the major cloud providers with the promise of all these free credits, only to wind up locked into unpredictable cloud bills and outrageous costs. I've had this happen myself. Well, Linode is here to change the cloud journey for startups. How? Well, they provide predictable pricing. So you don't have any sticker shock. You don't have any unnecessary overages. And they have industry-leading price-to-performance ratios with simplified infrastructure. And of course, they have 24-7, 365-day-a-year award-winning support. So here is your call to action. Linode has a startup program called Rise. It was built specifically for founder-led early-stage startups, and they're offering a three-year discount program. They will give you technology consultants to help guide your infrastructure growth. You can apply to the Rise program today as a startup at linode.com slash twist. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash twist. Thank you so much to for Linode sponsoring all these great uh, startups and, and for the Rise program. It's really a great service, and it's great that you're of service to the startup community. I really appreciate that. Linode.com slash twist. We are excited today to talk to Raphael or Raf Ilishayev, CEO of GoPuff, which is mm. instant as I understand it, instant commerce, like no pressure. Some people are doing commerce. Some people are doing delivery. GoPuff is like, no, 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 instant. Mm. Welcome uh, to the really show. Really fast, like super fast. Uh, welcome to the program, Ray. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Jason. Molly, good to see you. So let's define how fast you get products to people and what exactly you're delivering. Um, how long has GoPuff been around and what is the mantra in terms of how quickly you get various uh, items to people's homes? 
what's the goal here? Yeah, why don't I, I start a little bit about the origin story, tell you guys how we started this thing. And, uh, you know, no, 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 no. Tell me the answer to my question first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, this PR speak where I know that somebody media trained you to tell me the origin story. I don't care. I want to know the brass tacks. How quickly do you get stuff to people's doors? What's the goal? Yeah. So we, on average, our delivery time is 17 minutes uh, across the board. Uh, in newer uh, cities like New York, it's even faster than that. Average delivery time in the low teens. So very, very fast, uh, but different to most folks coming from our micro fulfillment centers to our end customers. Uh, that, that's why the speed is made so quickly. 17 minutes is your average. That's the real average, 17 minutes in a city. Yeah, it's, it's very, very, very fast. And in New York, it's 11 minutes. Tw yeah, it's in, it's in the low teens, but yes. Okay, so now explain to me how that mm -hmm. is possible because I would think, just off the top of my head here, putting a bunch of stuff into a bag takes five minutes. So that gives you seven minutes to race it to somebody's house. How do you do it? Walk me through the, the minute economics here. Yeah, uh, so it, it took years of iteration. We've been doing this for nine years to get from, you know, 40 minutes in delivery to 30 to then sub 20. Uh, but the reality is it's a combination of a number of things. One, it's the infrastructure that you build within a city. So like, for example, in a city like Manhattan, we have close to 16 micro fulfillment centers. And each micro fulfillment center has a certain radius that allows for a certain drive time, or in the case of New York City, a certain bike time. So it takes an average just shy of two minutes to pack an order. Uh, most orders do not go out with a single batch. So they'll, they'll go out with one, two or three orders in a, in a run. And then there's a very, very tight delivery window, uh, the delivery zone around that micro fulfillment center that doesn't allow for a long run. So the key is to make sure that, you know, the driver or the biker is not going too far. And then the empty leg that they're coming back with is obviously also short as well. So I don't want to oversimplify the problem, but it's, it's a lot of work on infrastructure and it's nine years of work on building the tech inside the micro fulfillment centers to enable for a kind how of really big fast is a, a micro fulfillment center. You said there's 16 of them in Manhattan or Manhattan, Brooklyn and the boroughs, which boroughs are you in? So uh, we're, we're in every borough, but Staten Island, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be, we'll be in Staten Island in, uh, in a month. Uh, we cover every major DMA in the U S all top 100 DMAs. Uh, roughly 36% of the U.S. population is Explain within one DMA mile. Explain what DMA is. Yeah, what's a DMA? Uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a master district. So, like, so uh, 100 of the top cities in the U.S. Uh, we'll, we'll cover. And, uh, you know, essentially, uh, you know, just, just shy of 36% of the U.S. population is within a one-mile drive of a GoPuff micro-fulfillment center. Wow. How, so, how big are they square foot wise? And then how do you pick them? Are they store? Are they former storefronts? Like I heard, like sometimes you guys or some folks in the space are buying existing bodegas or corner stores. So the smallest one is probably like 5,500 square feet. And the largest one is like 20,000 square feet. That's a, that's a BevMo. So like, you know, I, kind of going all over the place, but we have some, some physical uh, retail stores that we bought for the liquor licenses. Like in California, we bought BevMo. Ah. In Kentucky, we bought Liquor Barn for their liquor license, and we use the existing infrastructure. They're, they're larger stores. Yeah, so sure. I have a BevMo in my area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll use their infrastructure. We'll build a micro fulfillment center within inside of a BevMo, and ah. and then we'll deliver from there. But everywhere else, it's a standalone dark store mm. uh, or a micro fulfillment center that we'll then use for delivery. So anywhere between five and you know all the way up to twenty thousand square feet. I mean, I feel like this is where we should clarify that the other big difference in addition to a 17 minute delivery time between you and every other delivery outfit is that you are purchasing and holding and packing your own inventory. What made you decide to invest in those, you know, real estate assets in inventory in curating? That's, yep. you know, it's a complicated undertaking. Yeah, it's it's kind of what I wanted to hit a little bit about how we started because it it is important to All right, understand. Now I'll allow the origin uh, yeah. story. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 kind of hard to imagine it's nine years since we thought of the idea. Uh, Kira and I were in college, and like the entirety of delivery just didn't make sense to us. Everyone uh, how they were handling delivery was through this third party model. I'm going to go to the store, pick up from the store, and deliver from the store to end customers. And Instagram like, model. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was a shitty experience all around. You had no inventory controls. You had these crazy service fees. There's markup on items. Deliveries took too long. None of it made sense to us. So we knew that we wanted to go first party from day one, right? We we're in college solving our own problem, Yakir and I. And we knew we wanted to open up our own micro fulfillment centers. We just had no idea how. 
And we had a little bit of an unorthodox kind of beginning. We didn't raise any money for the first two and a half years. And we started up the business by finding uh, office buildings that were throwing away all of their furniture. And we would take all their furniture, pack it up in a storage unit, and then sell it. We ended up accumulating like $50,000. That was like our seed round. That's how we started the business. And then for the first two and a half years, we just operated a profitable business. Uh, we opened up in Philadelphia. Uh, it was just one microfilament center for the entire city. So delivery times were a lot longer back then. Uh, then we opened up Boston, Washington, D.C., Austin, Texas, raised our first round. And then when it's, re- it's really where we started kind of expanding a lot better and you know, opening up and building more tech and more infrastructure. But the premise of the business is we were solving our own use case. Got right? it. We, so how much do you charge for a delivery? Two bucks. Two bucks. So and are all of the runners or delivery people full time staff or are they contractors like DoorDash, DoorDashers? For, for, the, for the most part. So our European business, uh, they're full time employees. Got it. Um, and in the US business, for the most part, they're independent contractors. Got it. And so those independent contractors, how many deliveries do they do per hour? How many can they do? And then what do they make? How do they get paid? So it's all across the board, depending Let's on the tier, of the, mar- yeah. Yeah, tier of the market. So anywhere between like three and five deliveries per hour. Three uh, and five bike, deliveries. A bike can make. And like the, the pay varies from like 17 bucks an hour all the way up to like $30 an hour, depending on the, on the tier of market, you know, how many orders a driver is doing, how efficient a driver is. But like we're paying well above uh, what I would say the industry norm is. And it's not because, uh, you know, our, our, our drivers, you know, the, the model per delivery actually is very similar to what you would see so in a traditional 3P player. Well, Somebody wait, can I jump in? Because yeah, I, I still want I, I to go back to what oh, made you decide, because yeah. why you decided to buy your own inventory. Because sure, Instacart and DoorDash and Uber Eats and whatever, like it might be suboptimal in some ways, but it's still doing pretty well. And so I still want to get to like why you were so committed to this this big investment of buying and curating your own inventory so there's two reasons one is that the experience at least for us the 20 year old version of ourselves was really really freaking shitty right that it didn't make sense it took too long the you would never get what so you, you guys ordered. are very spoiled you've never had anybody do your shopping for you before and you're like <laughs> we can't live like this they're not picking well, up I mean, the right apple <laughs> is it, the issue is they give you the wrong thing the personal shopper on instacart i think we've all been through this yeah, yeah. you ask them for like I was ordering those chocolate uh, Haagen-Dazs bars because Chamath was eating them one night. And I was like, let me get those for the girls. <laughs> and they brought me chocolate ice cream, Haagen-Dazs chocolate ice cream. I was like, no, I specifically picked the chocolate bars. Like, how do you get that right. wrong? Well, and we're teasing yeah. you, but the producers point out this was 2013, 2014. The experience was probably very different. Yeah, they it was, it was, gotten it, it was, down it, to it, a it, it, was, it was very but different. They always then. get stuff wrong. That's yeah. the bottom line. They always get stuff wrong. And, and then the other thing is like, you know, we're we were raised in kind of as first generation Americans, right? Both of our parents came here, had us working from a young age. And the reality is, is like, they're like, you need to build a business that freaking makes money. Mm. Right. And the three P model doesn't make any money. It doesn't make any money on your unit economic basis. People talk about you know, what their path to EBITDA is. We were EBITDA profitable for our first two and a half years, right? Before we raised even a single dollar. Yeah. Do you do substitutions then? Like, how do you deal with that? Because that seems to me to be a major friction decision point where you're like, I want strawberry, you know, yogurt. And they're like, oh, strawberry's gone. You, would you like raspberry? Can we substitute it for you? And then Instacart was like doing that in real time with the shopper. I don't know. I always found it like, just get it right or don't give it to me was my philosophy. So do you guys do that? Like swap it out thing and then back and forth with the users? No, not really. Uh, mm-hmm. Because we, we owned the, the, the entire inventory management part of the business. We own the supply. Mm-hmm. We're completely vertically integrated. So we right. have real time understanding of what's in stock and what's out of stock. Mm-hmm. So like our like an industry metric that a lot of folks use is like a mispack rate. Like our mispack rate is 30 basis points right now. It's under half of a percentage point of all orders. So one in 300 mm-hmm. orders, you mispack some. It, even even less than that. Yeah. yeah, one in 300. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you're right. Your, ma- your math is better than mine. Back of the uh, <laughs> it's this thing. Um, right. So the, the, re- the reality is it's very, very low and it's getting smaller. And it took a lot of years of building really, really strong tech within the four walls of the building to get mm-hmm. there, right? This doesn't happen over, you know, over one or two or three years. A lot of learning and a lot of iteration before we started getting it right. So it took a lot of discipline and a lot of building of it makes kind sense of tech to me because if you're like, hey, listen, here's the yogurts, it's in order. We're not going to have, you know, if you look at yogurt at 
Whole Foods, there might be 20 brands of yogurt. I'm assuming because you're doing micro stores, you're like, we're going to pick one yogurt brand and have it in stock. So it's less skews. Is that part of the magic is less skews. And then the store is organized in a much more sensible way. So whatever the most often ordered are, are, you know, on the lower shelves and the less order are on higher shelves. And it's just harder to make a mistake for the packers. Is that what's going on here? Yeah. So when we started, right, we were in this like convenience category, right? We're going to disrupt the convenience store. So we're going to have convenience store type of SKUs. By the time we got to like 2015, 2016, we realized the opportunity is just a whole lot bigger. So we started calling it instant needs, right? So anything someone needs from an immediate everyday basis, we'll deliver to them. So we expanded into ice cream and then alcohol That's and over the counter. immediate. Yeah. yeah. Over the counter medication, pet food, baby food, household essentials. We launched this Gope of Kitchens business where we have full-blown commercial kitchens inside of our micro-fulfillment centers that we're using to, uh, uh, to deliver and now expanding into grocery in a, in a much deeper way. So like the, the way that we think about category and assortment expansion is basically on what our consumers want. So it's not like what's predefined by traditional brick-and-mortar retail, right? If, yeah. like, if something doesn't like, neatly fit within grocery or convenience or drug, they don't kind of introduce well, you don't it. have the room for it. I mean, you got a 5,000 to 15,000 square foot place. You just do not have the luxury of having what a supermarket might have. Molly? Well, we could fit a lot more SKUs yeah. per square foot than a supermarket can because we have no one walking in there. So Yes, it could be yeah. narrower and yeah, taller. So, yeah, People are right. not getting on ladders in their so, supermarket. So, so you can. Think, like, think like four to 6,000 SKUs is what generally fits within our micro-fulfillment center. And like as much as we're introducing items and really being aggressive on introducing new items, the stragglers we discontinue really quickly as well. It's time for another R Crowd deal of the week. Right now, you can join R Crowd's investment in HIL Applied Medical. According to the deal memo, they are using Nobel Prize winning technology to bring the most advanced radiotherapy treatment to cancer patients. HIL's world class laser based system has earned them an agreement with Proton International which is the largest proton therapy operator in the U.S. and Europe, and you can invest in HIL Applied Medical at rcrowd.com slash twist. All over the world, companies like HIL Applied Medical are innovating and driving returns for investors. Rcrowd analyzes many of these companies, then they select the ones with the greatest growth potential, and they bring them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity, and now Proton Therapy, a $20 billion total addressable market according to the deal memo. In state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, R-Crowd identifies innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest, and that's early. So here's your call to action. If you are an accredited investor, you can join R-Crowd for free at ourcrowd.com slash twist and review the current deals. That's rcrowd.com slash twist to sign up for free. So we, we, we focus really well on like, you know, how do we make sure that the, the SKUs that matter most to our customers we're introducing in a really meaningful way, right? We did it with alcohol in the beginning. It was really freaking tough because getting liquor licenses here in the US, you can imagine is not an, an easy challenge by any stretch of the imagination. You know, today we own just shy of 400 of them. So that, that took a lot of years of, again, of, of building, of getting it right. And it, it just doesn't happen overnight. The same thing would happening with the Gopuff Kitchens business today. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the most requested item on Gopuff was hot pizza. And we're like, oh, well, Not easy. how the, how the freak right, are we going to deliver hot pizza? So Yeah, and you got Domino's does a pretty good job. Well, Maybe. it's the, the reality is it's it, people want a one-stop shop. People don't oh. want just hot pizza. They want, so they're like. Right. That's uh, why you uh, see like DoorDash, for example, like you can order some food and then you can tack on in the next 10 minutes, some ice cream and some cold medicine and whatever. Talk to us about margins, though. Um, you know, I mean, you raised a billion dollars at a $15 billion valuation. This is not what we think of with delivery companies, let alone ones that are vertically integrated and own all their own assets in this way. Like, how are you? Are you marking up the price on items? How are you able to? What do your margins look like here? So margins in traditional kind of brick and mortar retail are really healthy for these kind of items, right? They're in the high 30s, low 40s. But not usually once you add in delivery. That's like where it starts up. Yeah. So the the two dollar the two dollar fees a direct pass through to uh, to to our drivers plus the tip. So if you look at like our established markets, right? You know, mar even our most established market is still growing seventy percent of year over year, which is Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. But like even if you look at our you know pre twenty seventeen markets. Right, they're operating today in a fifteen percent EBITDA margin, right? Fully loaded EBITDA margin. Mm. So, like, if you're if you're looking and kind of uh, identifying, you know, your comp markets and your established markets are producing strong EBITDA on a per order basis, 
It kind of gives you all the confidence in the world to continue to open up a massive amount of buildings, expand into new countries and continue to do it. So it's like, it's been our mantra from kind of day one. It's nailed this business model, produce really positive unit economics and then scale it. And it's why investors have been so excited about GoPub, right? It's kind it's of the opposite cool. of everyone yeah. else's approach. Well, you get it in 17 minutes. It's convenience mm -hmm. store items like 7-Eleven, which have, you're saying, a 30% margin. What's the average, you know, order size? 20, 30, 40 bucks? Yeah, just shy of $30. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we take 30 bucks, 30%, you're making $9 on the delivery or thereabouts 30%. Uh, so that's pretty healthy because these are items that are convenient. So you... It's not supermarket, it's convenience store, right? Like yeah, it's, 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 it's not, not exactly right. So we started oh. on, on the convenience store space, right? We had like eight, 900 SKUs similar to what a convenience store has, right? Today we have closer to, you know, 4,500 SKUs. So oh. we're kind of across the spectrum, right? Between over-the-counter medication, pet food, diapers, baby food. Uh, you know, we're getting into groceries. So like 100% of our New York stores have a full-blown grocery assortment today, right? Okay. So like you're talking about fruits and vegetables. So uh, the GoPub of 2013 and GoPub of 2022 are two very, very different GoPubs. You're maintaining that 30%. And then the driver can do three or four of these an hour. Let's pick three. They get the two bucks. You're saying it's passed through. So they make six bucks. And then what is the, what is the average tip in Manhattan or a place like that? If it's a $30 it, ticket, people do 20% tip, six bucks. It's kind of across the board, right? So tipping is across the board. It's in the, it's in the mid single digits mid single digit so five six bucks so let's say you made five four five six bucks you do three of these orders in an hour three times four is 12 you get the other six that's 18 so that's what gets you to 18 are you having a hard time finding those drivers because one of the themes we're hearing about is that there's a dogfight for drivers 18 is double the minimum wage of the country well more because it's i think it's seven and change is the federal minimum wage and then new york city is 15 now i think so you're 30% higher than minimum wage. Is it still hard to find drivers? Is that the gating factor for or the hardest part of your business? Not not quite as hard as kind of we're hearing the, the news come out from the industry. So like 90% of GoPuff delivery partners only work for GoPuff, right? And that's not because we only force them to work for GoPuff. It's because their own choice to work for GoPuff. And I think what's really, really unique about the GoPuff experience is you could choose to be a W-2 employee. Or you could choose to be a delivery partner. If you want, you can apply and work for any one of our micro-fulfillment centers. We have tens of thousands of employees there that are working inside of our buildings that are full-time employees. So it's like you have this option of, do I want to be a delivery partner that goes back to like a, a corporately owned location every single day? You're not dealing with coming mom, mom and pop pizza store or anything else, right? You're dealing with go of employees day in and day out. Or you can choose to, to, to be a W-2 employee and work in one, one of our buildings. So it's this unique relationship that we have where a person can choose to be a delivery partner, or a person can choose to work in one of our buildings. Uh, so the packers inside the building are full-time employees, the full -time runners employees. Uh, are freelancers. So that is a unique opportunity because it's essentially yeah, a pretty similar job. Yeah, some people prefer the flexibility of being a, a driver, a driver right. partner, and right. some people prefer to be a w, W2 employee, right? So it's like, it, re it really, we, we kind of give... Uh, we give folks an option to to choose to to partner with us as delivery partners or to work within our micro fulfillment centers as uh, as uh, as they want to make the same amount of money. Uh, it's a, a, depending on the job within the building, right? A shift lead will make a different an operations associate than a receiver, right? There's mm -hmm. different jobs within a building. And are they all on bikes? You said in Manhattan, it depends on the market, right? Some are in cars, some are in bikes, yeah. and they they bring their own. I assume bikes and cars, just like yeah. everybody else does. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Um, is that a headwind for you at all? The question about labor, like certainly that's been an ongoing conversation about whether you're going to have to reclassify. It seems like that's died down some during the pandemic because everyone's so desperate for delivery. Is that a little bit of a boom? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm squarely focused on our customers and our delivery partners, right? Like what, what's best for our customers and what our customers want is what we're going to do. So the reality is like we've paid attention to what's been happening kind of uh, with the classifications of, of 1099s and kind of kept our close ear on it but the reality is, is the vast majority of our drivers are really really happy right, right? like but the, the, what if your the, customers wanted your drivers to be employees just to poke the bear a tiny bit i don't think i don't think the it matters for the customers either way how the drivers are classified as long as they're happy right and uh, the reality i agree is with the that vast, you disagree molly you think like there's customers who care no i think that's true i do, yeah. yeah no I, I think that's totally true but like i mean i think as long as the drivers ha are happy is a is an important qualification yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. In Europe, you have to make the drivers full time, though. They have to make them in in most countries in Europe, you do. Yeah. So this and that affects the business. How you just have to charge a little more for delivery You have to instead of two bucks, you charge three or four. Uh, The the price point is the same. Uh, The price of the goods kind of varies a little bit, depending on the market. Uh, But the reality is is that we're very, very competitive still in those markets. And like, we're not we're not going to launch a market. There's two basic tenants that we have on like kind of launching new countries, new states, whatever it is. We won't launch in an area unless we believe we could be the number one market player in that area, right? We've done that in the US. Right? If you look at third party data, Yipit just released uh, a study. We have 73% share in this instant needs category, right? Quick commerce, whatever you want. We call it instant needs uh, here in the US. So we're trying to replicate the magic we had here in the US, uh, in Europe as well. We're not going to enter a country unless we can be the number one player there. And then two, it's like, we're not going to operate and lose money forever, right? This business was built on the tenets of really, really strong unit economics and profitability. So we're not going to go out and open up markets and lose money for years and years and years, especially on a unit level and not produce a, a profit on a unit level. So um, we're, we're examining all of that in kind of every market that we're entering into and then kind of making strategic decisions along the way and what makes most sense both for you know, our customers first and foremost, and then to how unit economics play out. And th- does this model, will this model ever work in the suburbs? Obviously, it won't work in the country where like, you know, people might be 30 minutes. 45 minutes from a store they can i guess order amazon if they really want delivery wait two days but they're not going to get 17 minute delivery so we assume if you live in the country in the boondocks this isn't for you in the city it obviously is but what about the suburbs you you start to get out to new jersey or white plains from new york or long island where people are it's obviously not going to be 17 minutes but it might be 27 minutes 47 minutes how are you thinking about the suburbs do you care or you just want to be in the metros yeah suburbs is our, is our largest opportunity today right mm-hmm. we see larger baskets more loyalty higher retention in the suburbs which is uh which is pretty spectacular and uh well we, we look at it two ways right we look at urban adjacencies so like areas that are like immediately outside of the city might be classified as suburbs might be still classified as urban areas and then kind of pure play suburbs so like the entirety of 2022 is focused on those two categories give us the pure play suburbs how do you attack that you just change the expectation because in those places people are probably looking at a two four hour window right yeah so gopov is instant no matter what but it's not going to be you know in the in the teens from a delivery standpoint but to your point in the high 20s early 30s from an average delivery time in the suburbs but we've I mean, proven at out least that there's it, like lots of cheap real estate in the suburbs right it doesn't seem yeah. like it would be that hard for you to actually pop F- up F- micro centers that can bring down that time fixed costs are really really inexpensive yeah uh mm. labor is generally cheaper yep uh and it works really well so we tested it actually uh when we acquired bevmo and we acquired liquor barn there was a lot of stores within the suburbs so we tested how the model would work we already have the real estate you know i mean we already have the liquor licenses let's see how go up works and it was a phenomenal success and we already had a few stores kind of in Pennsylvania and outside of Washington, D.C. and Arlington that were in the suburbs that were working well. This just gave us even more confidence on this is an area that we want to make a massive investment in. And again, like what I tell you in 2022, it's a massive focus for us. Yeah, I mean, that's where I feel like your business model is just poised to slay because people in the suburbs or even like, you know, I'm in the Oakland Hills, which I call Urburban. Like I'm attached to a major metro area and most places will not deliver to me. And that's insane. And the idea that you're in the position to have the real estate and the infrastructure to actually crack this market where people are desperate for delivery seems like a a huge win for you. Yeah. I mean, and listen, this is like a freaking hard business to scale. Uh, It's it's a reason why we didn't make any, like if you guys know a a lot about GoPuff kind of in the early days, like between 2015 and 2019, we didn't make any media announcement. There was no PR. There was no press releases. There was no media. We did that because we were really figuring out how to scale this business in a really massive, like all the infrastructure and tech it took to get to a place where you can open up a building a day, right? We were, we're opening up 30 buildings a month uh, in the last couple of months, right? The, it's impressive. And the team has done a lot of really great work to get there. But it took years of planning and years of tech buildup to get to a place where, you know, we could stand up a building a day. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 gives, it what gives us the opportunity today to kind of be a dominant player in kind of urban adjacencies and in suburbs. The uh, acquisition of BevMo gotcha, I think, 160, 170 stores in one acquisition, 300 million or 350 million, 2 million per store. 
Take me uh, how you went through that decision. Was it because they already had liquor licenses or all lined up? Or was it more efficient to just get 166 of those stores for 2 million each than to stand up your own micro facility? So in the US, it takes anywhere between six months and like three years, depending on the state to acquire a single liquor license. Oh, my Lord. And uh, each one, this is not a money equation. It's not like you could throw more cash against the problem and speed up the regulatory process to acquire liquor life. And then there's certain states that are quota state. I'm not going to get too deep into the alcohol framework, but there's certain states that are quota states where you have to buy uh, from an existing player. So you have to buy a local mom and pop or someone else, shut them down, move the license to your place, and then you could start delivering. Uh, in the case of California, uh, it's, it's a particularly difficult state to acquire mm. liquor licenses. And acquiring the market dominant player in California to give us kind of, I think it's like 60% of all of California's population are within a mile and a half of a BevMo. Uh, so to give that kind of infrastructure boost, right? I think we could have still opened up the buildings very fast. I don't think we ever would have been able to replicate the regulatory and liquor framework that BevMo has built. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about like even five or six or seven well, years out. And like you said, those stores are completely inefficient designed for consumers. So if you just took the back third of the store, I'm not sure if this is what you're planning and made that not available to consumers, but made it 12 because they tend to be high ceiling. You made it 15 foot high with ladders for the delivery business going out the back door. Man, that could be powerful. That's that's the plan, I guess, is to put your go puffs inside the back of the of the or the front of the BevMo's. Yeah, 110 of the stores are already converted. So out of the 161, oh, wow. 110 wow. have full go puff capabilities. All of LA's turned on all of San Francisco's turned on San Diego. So we, we've, uh, the plan, the original plan, uh, I'll share with you guys, uh, that have been, we, we never released it was 45 stores in 2021. Mm. And, uh, we clearly went above and beyond that on, uh, on our approach because the more we open up these bev modes and make go of available and the consumer demand, the more excited we got. We're like, man, we really need to change the plan here and press the accelerator. And don't forget, we acquired a business that was doing hundreds of millions in revenue, right? Yeah. So we had to do this while doing no harm to the BevMo business. So we are able to grow uh, the traditional business by just you know, doing some really basic blocking and tackling on the retail side, right? On the assortment side, introducing some items that they, they just didn't have. And, uh, you know, so we grew the retail business by doing, again, really, really basic blocking and tackling. And the delivery business, I think, has surpassed everyone's expectation on what we did in California. I mean, it's so refreshing to talk to you and just have you be like, yes, we have nailed the business model. We are totally profitable. We're making baller moves coming in, buying BevMo. What comes next? Like you have got to have people beating down your door to go public. Yeah, I think, you know, we're going to do what's uh, what's we've, we've been doing this for a long time. Right. I, I mean, I think you guys know we can't talk about that, but uh, we're going to do what's right for for ourselves and for our customers and for the company. So, you know, we've been, we've been doing this for a really, really long time. Uh, we've raised a, a whole bunch of money. We have a lot of really, really great shareholders. We got lucky kind of halfway through our journey to be really, really selective with the, the shareholders that we got uh, on board, right? And uh, right now, we're just focused on our customer and the business. And, you know, yeah, and you, you figured out the say. business model, right? You feel yeah. confident in the margins and the predictability of the business, correct? Yeah. So I think... As long as the unit economics remain so profitable on the comp side, it gives me all the confidence in the world to invest in buildings and infrastructure, right? So like the biggest investment in this build in, the, in this business is you got to open up a building, you got to acquire a liquor license, right? Uh, which again, could be anywhere between $5,000 and 3 million bucks per store. And uh, then you have some operating cash loss in the building before it switched to, prop- to break even and then profitability. So you have 100% of your cut markets that are producing profit today. So we define comp as 18 months or older. So as long as those trends remain true, Yakir and I are going to continue to invest in the business in a really, really massive way, right? Where we've been seeing some really crazy growth on the back half of that. And if those trends don't remain true, then we won't invest in growth, right? We'll, we'll switch the profitability lever. Again, we're in a very fortunate position to be able to pull the lever and like say, hey, if we want to go back to an EBITDA position, we could. Yeah. I mean, you're, you want to grow, you want to take market share, but you know the predictability, you know, in year two, at some point, 18 months, whatever it is, it could be 12, it could be 24, you can hit profitability, which is what the public markets are looking for. The public markets do not want inventory, as we've seen, that are not predictable or have a path to profitability, and, and you clearly have that. Now, the name is Go Puff. 
Here it and comes. you have <laughs> Ease and Meadow and a bunch of other players out there delivering cannabis. Cannabis mm -hmm. is legal in the majority of states. You started in uh, a lot of college towns. Uh, some college people might be known to have a drink or a puff, as it were. I don't know if Go Puff was uh, in any way related to puffing, but uh, you sell rolling papers and hookahs and other stuff. So. Talk to me about cannabis and how you view the cannabis market and why you're not in it. If you bought Bevmo, why wouldn't you buy Ease or Meadow? Seems like yeah. a no-brainer for a GoPuff. So we've uh, we've been getting into kind of regulatory products for quite a while, right? Mm -hmm. Clearly, uh, this alcohol world is very, very complicated. It's a state-by-state -state issue. What I can tell you about cannabis is it's a category that we won't touch until it's federally legal. There's uh -huh. just there there there's too much complexity for a business of our size, kind of our magnitude. Mm. The I'm, I'm not going to go through like the the banking issues and the regulatory oh issues with yeah. uh, even with alcohol. No, we know about states. the banking ones. I mean, and the regulatory with alcohol. Those two things combined cause a problem. You think? Uh, it, it's just not something that we're considering until it's federally legal, right? Yeah. We, we we looked into a number of regulatory categories. Mm. Uh, this is one that we're not going to step into until the federal government decides what it wants to do with it in terms of legalizing or not legalizing. What are your potential headwinds? I mean, this is, you know, despite all of the positives here on your balance sheet, a very competitive business. Like what could come along and be a problem for you? Yeah, I mean, listen, we, the thing that I already don't sleep a lot at night, but the thing that really, <laughs> the, the thing that bothers me kind of Jason's more Jason's like, good. Else, That's how uh, it should be. Good sign as a founder. Um, be paranoid. <laughs> yeah, more than anything else is like the next generation of people, right? So it's like, we've been able to come in here, right? We've done a lot of good, right? We, we've got the 73% market share in this instant needs category. We're the largest, we're the number one seller of ice cream in e-commerce. We're approaching to be the number one seller of alcohol in e-commerce here in the US, right? We have a lot of really great wins under our belt. Uh, if the next generation of people are not the same level of scrappy, the same level of finding comfort and discomfort, you know, someone will come and out execute us. Mm. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think it's a fear that a lot of founders have. And Yakira and I spend a lot of time on the people portion of this equation. You guys can think it's crazy. Up until like 18, 19 months ago, Yakira and I still did every single interview. Right? It was our entire yeah, weekend. That's not crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, if you want to set the culture of the company, mm -hmm. if you interview everybody, that's great. You know, you're going to keep the culture and they get to meet you. And but then tens you of thousands of where of, Microsoft fulfillment yeah, center it, employees. It, 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 yeah. it, it was getting out of hand, right? Yeah. So um, we, 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 we did a leveling exercise. I think HR came in and said, you know, you guys are, are killing yourself. It, it was our entire weekend, right? It was 10 hours back to back each, each day for Saturday and Sunday that we reserved for, for interviews. We still do kind of level five and level six and up uh, for everyone that's joining. Uh, Those would be executive team members, directors and above, VPs and above. We, we do senior managers and above. Right. Still. Perfect. Top um, 20%. That's a smart move, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we, we set a really, really strict framework, uh, the kind of folks that we let into the organization and really making sure that we could scale. It's why I think the European business has been really freaking kicking ass, right? The, the folks that we got on board first, we, we made two acquisitions in, uh, in the UK, uh, both of which for, were essentially from an aqua hire perspective, right? They, they had some good infrastructure, but we bought it because of the founders. We loved kind of their, their kick ass attitude and, you know, wh whatever it takes kind of approach. And Alberto, who was, uh, who was the CEO of, of Deja, is running the UK market for us right now. I can tell you, uh, UK is like 7x higher from a run rate perspective than we had forecasted. Amazing. So tell wow. me about, uh, speaking of kicking butt, Mr. Beast, uh, obviously, who runs YouTube at this <laughs> point. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, he's going to do a brand on your platform. He obviously did Mr. Beast Burger and rolled his own... Uh, you know, uh, distributed food, and he and he's a very entrepreneurial guy. I met him. Uh, what What are you doing with Mr. Beast? The Mr. Beast is launching an awesome chocolate bar. Uh, ah. It will be available in two places. It will be available on his website and on GoPuff. Amazing. And uh, I think uh, you know, GoPuff has become like the go to platform for celebrity influencer products, right? Mm. Uh, this uh, Mr. Beast is just really the latest and one that we're really really excited about. Emma Chamberlain launched her coffee on uh, on GoPuff, and that was an awesome success. Selena uh, Gomez's serendipity ice cream, actually one that we co-invested with her. We invested right from GoPuff's balance sheet uh, and introduced Chris Paul, uh, launched a put me on campaign uh, with GoPuff, which 
basically is all under like minority and un underutilized brands, CPG brands, kind of across the country that applied on GoPuff. So even though it's not a celebrity brand, it's one that we did with with Chris Paul. And we have a whole slew of other How do those deals uh, go down? Is it the yeah. you, you just reach out here? to the influ influencer, yep. influencer reaches out to you, you talk to their management? How does it go down? So like 2017, 2018, there was a lot of GoPuff reaching out because like, so like, here, here's what's crazy. Like in the last 18 months, we opened up more square footage than we did in the previous three years combined together. So like, we had a lot more coverage in the US in the last 18 months. And again, it took a lot of years of work to kind of get there. But because we have so much representation in the US and GoPuff has become such a dominant player, we went from like, hey, we're reaching out to folks and kind of telling them, hey, get it on GoPuff to when folks reach out to us, this is something that we'll do, we'll blow it up, we'll make it good, but it's, it's going to be an exclusive for a while. So a lot of folks that, are, that have reached out to us as a byproduct have gotten really, really amazing launches. And, you know, you get one success and then kind of success starts piling on. Yeah. So after yeah. we launched the first brand and the second brand came along and then third brand and then uh, this Selena serendipity thing was uh, gangbusters. Mm. And uh, and then, you know, this I think this this Mr. Beast partnership is going to be, if not the best one, one of the best ones we ever had. Well, I mean, if you if you think about it from their side, they're making a product, you're giving them distribution, you're moving product for them. And then if people happen to not know about GoPuff now uh, already, or maybe they heard about it, but didn't download the app, you know, you get their entire audience to hear the word GoPuff five times in a in a in a YouTube video or Instagram or TikTok, they might go try it, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's a win win it's for everybody. It's, it's, it's for sure a win win. And something that uh, that everyone's excited about, and like, you know, you get it to you know a third of the U.S. population, and like, here, here here's the thing, right? Like, we don't have uh, the same barriers that traditional retail has, right? All these resets, and we can only introduce things once a quarter or anything like. We get from idea to our brain to it's available nationally is like ten to fourteen days. So we we can move very very fast on product introduction and product curation mm -hmm. in a way that just you know traditional brick and mortar just can't. This is uh, a yeah. generally a question about, I'm sorry, do you have a follow-up on that? No, 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 go ahead. I have generally a question about uh, expansion, as, but also it's somewhat selfish because I really liked the Mr. Beast burger. And I'm on your website and I see that you're in Omaha and Orange and Orlando, but not Oakland. So as part of your like urban strategy, how are you thinking about expansion? And also, come on, man, cross the bridge. Just, just one little bridge. <laughs> it's, it's coming soon. <laughs> I can promise you. I mean, we have this, uh, we have this tool that we built it's called GMOT. It's a GoBot market optimization tool. And uh, essentially, it'll, it'll drop pins all over the country and tell us how much customers and potential revenue we're missing by not being in a geo. Oh, interesting. So what they, are the they, metrics? What are you pulling from to determine so that? So we're, we're, we're looking at intent to purchase. It's the number one metric, right? So it's folks mm -hmm. that are getting onto the platform, trying to order GoBot, but can't order GoBot, right? They get the message that, you know, we're not in your delivery zone. So that, that piles in. And we build lookalike audiences. So like, we'll, we'll see what a GoPuff customer looks like in a geo. And then we'll match it to the demographics mm. in that area and say like, there, there's a higher likelihood than not than this person would be a GoPuff customer. Hmm. And here's what their LTV would look like. Here's what... Uh, what, what determines a, a GoPuff customer? Is it their like the certain phone they use or Android or iOS more likely? Is it age? Is it single versus families? Yeah, it, it's, it's more, more demographic based. So the average, custom, average GoPuff customer is 30 years old. Uh, even though like we have, I, I love bringing this example of our no number one customer in Phoenix. Uh, you know, I spoke to her actually a few months ago, uh, is a 75 or 76 year old woman who oh, uses wow. go up three times a day. Wow. Um, okay, well, that's an addiction. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. but how would, but how would that target audience change per market? Because like you said, the suburbs are a huge opportunity, but that doesn't yeah. necessarily track. I'm generalizing, of course, but that doesn't necessarily track with. 30 year olds. So we'll find a market. So the, the tool, I mean, is doing it now Again, automatically. I want that Mr. Beast chocolate bar is what yeah. I'm trying to tell you. I <laughs> it's, it's coming. You, you send me the ad address after the podcast. <laughs> I'm going to make sure we prioritize it. Um, the, the reality is we'll find a market that looks similar, similar enough to it. Uh, that's mm -hmm. either close by. If there's no market that looks similar enough to it, then we'll just use intent to purchase. Mm -hmm. um, and then it'll give, it'll give us a revenue miss. So what we, what we've been seeing a lot more is G GMOT gets better the more data you give it, you, you input it, right? So like the more markets that you expand into, the more data you have in different areas, the better GMOT becomes. Mm. So the reality is, is we've been expanding to more suburbs. All of a sudden, the suburbs within our, our market optimization tool started looking a whole lot better because the, the, the tool got a whole bunch more data that this is working. So, you know, there's been a lot more pins and a lot more 
kind of red heated areas and places that we really need to expand into. Noticed you're starting to compete with the people whose products you carry by having your own, you know, house brand and Amazon basics, if you will, it's called basically uh, purified water, pretzels, batteries. Imagine no one trademarked that. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy that basically, I mean, you have Amazon <laughs> right? basics, but it's different yeah. than basically, but basically wow. it's a great brand. Um, so does this let you maintain margin while lowering prices? Is that the intent here? So this started with, uh, out of a consumer insights, uh, report. So our, uh, we had a, we had a report that came across my desk that 80% of GoPuff customers would love to see a private label brand on GoPuff that's uh, high quality and affordable. So a, a line that's, uh, that's more affordable than the kind of your traditional CPG, but still super high quality. So not you know, a shitty paper towel or shitty toilet right. paper or, mm-hmm. you know, like a Poland spring type of water. Like so that. to speak. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> wow, wow. No pun intended. Mm. Um, so from our perspective, we looked at that and we're like, hey, this is something that our consumers are asking for. And it's a high margin opportunity. It's kind of a, another kind of win-win situation for us. So we started exploring it. Uh, we hired a lot of the folks uh, from the brand list team. Um, oh the, yeah, the brandless team, right? That was a softback oh, bank team as well, and yeah. Tina Sharkey was there. I talked to; they were on the pod, and it didn't work out for them. But I always thought, what a brilliant idea brandless was! Great so team to are. acquire, totally yeah. to do basically a version of that, but with a much solid, more solid foundation behind it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, like again, like the the key around GoPuff, it's not it's, it's not like this one trick pony, right? It's not just private label or just alcohol or just the kitchens, but it's the combination of all of these things that makes GoPuff so great. And it's very, very, very rare that a GoBuff customer is just ordering from one category. So, like, what we see is that like, when a person comes onto GoBuff for the first time, they come in with a pretty clear intent. Like, I'm having a craving for ice cream or, you know, I really want this snack or I want a 12-pack you know, or beer or whatever else it is. And as their life cycle kind of develops, there's a kind of direct correlation between tenure and basket size. And the, that, re- that correlation is just growing with, like, multiple category expansion. So, like, once a customer gets to, like, their second, third, fourth order, they're ordering from multiple categories at once. And, like, in your active customer base, it's in low single digits percentage that someone's just ordering from one category. Mm-hmm. So, they, they, they come to GoPub because they, they heard that we have something. And then they, you know, go ahead and explore and add a whole skew of other, you know, products that, uh, that we have as well. Amazing. How are you thinking about, I'm starting to try to ask every single founder that we talk to how they're incorporating sustainability and climate change into their business, because especially when it comes to delivery, that's actually something consumers are pretty sensitive to. And I wonder how you're thinking about that in terms of getting things to consumers and packaging and the whole shebang. Yeah, something that uh, is top of mind. We actually had a meeting about it like three hours ago. So really, really top of mind. That would be top of mind. That's, yeah. yeah, that's pretty much uh, yeah. that. And then this, boom. Yeah. Um, so in Europe, uh, our packaging is, uh, there's no plastic at all, right? It's all paper. Uh, in the U S we're in the, we're in the process of switching altogether. So like even our plastic products are entirely recyclable. They're, they're, they're recycled and recyclable. And it's like a 50, 50 mix between recycled plastic and your, uh, your non-recycled material, right? Like, uh, cornstarch or, you know, the, your, your biodegradable. The problem is with like a pure play non-plastic bag, that's not paper. Uh, it's not strong enough to hold the products. It, like I'm, again, mm. I'm not. I don't want to get to 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 too uh, too tactical of issues, but it, it rips. Oh, right we through love it. the tactical. I love that. Actually. Yeah. We I love was just tactical saying here. that in Slack. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I love how specific Raf is. Like you are not no vague vagueness. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's be honest. Tactical was what it's all about when it comes to this. So, like, yeah. you know, but you, I you, see you, the packaging. You know, packaging sucks. Like everything is overpacked. So, can yeah. you influence that? Yeah, I mean, we're we're switching to an, an entirely paper model, right? And that, that that that's that's the one that seems to work. Uh, we want to do it in a way that still makes sense for the customer. So it's, it's something that we're doing. So we plant the you know flag flag on the ground that this is something that we want to do. Now it's like, how do you do it in a way that doesn't piss off customers? So uh, where there, there's a lot of a lot of minds <laughs> that are that are working on this problem right now. A lot of uh, people that are a lot smarter than you, Kira and I uh that that are working on it and it's something that we're going to do uh but we're going to do it in in a way that really makes sense for our customers yeah what do you think molly i love to hear it i love to hear it this is great you just just think about what the impact could be you've got young Mm -hmm. people starting companies you can dictate hey we want electric bikes uh we want electric scooters not gas vespas we want 
Priuses. If you drive a Prius, we're going to give you an extra 50 cents or per order. You can really incentivize people and, and sort of trend things the right way. And then if you think about packaging, you know, one of the things I love about Amazon is they have frustration free packing. And I would like to see more of this because, you know, if I'm ordering toothpaste, like, does it need to come in a box? And then the box need to be wrapped in plastic? Like, it's it's getting overkill sometimes. And then and consumers really want it. I mean, they really are demand. Like, the fact that you had a meeting about it three hours ago and the fact that, like, every time I get, you know, I get HelloFresh, I think, and I get these surveys, like, why are you skipping? And one of the options is too much packaging. Like, it is on people's minds. And, and there is an opportunity yeah. for a company of your size and scale to, like, really make a big difference. Yeah. I mean, listen, it, like this is one, I keep talking about customers and customers, even if customers weren't requesting this, this is something that you care and I would lean into. Yeah. And it want, it's just like an added benefit that the customers also want this, right? That, uh, that this is something that you know, I think public sentiment has shifted that this is something that's really, really important. Yeah. So it's something that we're focused on. We're going to do, we're going to do it. We want to do it in a way that, that makes everyone happy. Yeah. I would love to have a button to give feedback and say, I didn't buy this because of the packaging. That would be amazing, you know? And then totally. in, I don't know if you know this, Molly uh, or Rafe, um, when you're in Europe, the supermarkets are required to take the excess packaging from you. So in Europe, people will, if there's extra packaging, when they get their bags, un, you know, take their toothpaste out of the paper box and the plastic and leave that at the store rather than bring it to their homes. And the store is required to take that. Yeah, I mean, listen, there, there's a long, we've got a long way to go. Uh, by, by no stretch of the imagination, I'm sitting here and I'm saying, I've got everything figured out. Uh, you know, we got a lot, we got a lot to go and lots You're to learn. You're a great guest. I have to tell you, you get into the details, you're tactical, you're honest, you dropped a couple of F-bombs, I mean, I've had bombs, a couple of ish bombs, like you got a couple of jokes. I all the time. I do that freaking all the time. Freaking all the time. <laughs> all the time. It's freaking great. Uh, great guest. I think great guest, Molly, huh? I could not agree more. Raf, thank you so much. Raf Ilishayev, CEO of GoPuff, coming soon to Oakland. What, what? what Send me your address after this. I'm going I'm to take care of everything. <laughs> oh, you're the best. <laughs> no freebie. Oh, actually, for Molly, know, can, like, take freebies. Molly can take freebies. Molly can take freebies. I guess that's okay now. Um, we have a no uh, grift rule. We buy know, everything. No and you know why situation. I do that? Sometimes I, 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 investors I was, I was, was, was going to see when we're going to be available for your address. I okay, was okay, oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> I think he's I'm sending like, you Mr. Beast bars. Me. <laughs> hey, Mr. <laughs> Beast, send Molly a case. I'll, I'll, no. I'll DM Mr. Beast right now. So I will expect us, Molly to get a case of these chocolate bars. Just send us the timeline and we'll be happy. Great, great, great guests, great business. Love yeah. to talk to you, Ralph. I just you. downloaded the app. I'm going to order some stuff. I'm going to order some Frosted Flakes. Right oh, now. way to rub it in. I'm I ordering some Frosted Flakes. And I, oh, oh, look, Mr. Beast chocolate bars. Oh, extra <laughs> dark chocolate <laughs> with nuts. This freaking guy. Oh, <laughs> maybe I'll order and then I'll send an Uber with the bag over to you. <laughs> I'll yeah, throw nothing, it in an Uber X. Nothing wasteful about that at all. No, I just I'll order it to my house and then send 50 bucks sending oh, you an Uber. God. I'll send it in an Uber black to I'll you, Molly. My, I'll drive an my SUV to you. <laughs> Uh, you, you guys will. are hilarious. Like an escalade. Anyway. All right. We'll see you next Happy time. Break. Bye bye. Bye, bye. guys.